You're listening to The Witness Interview. I'm Robert Reed, and I'm in the recording booth with the manifestly talented writer, director and performer and a range of other art forms as well, Mingzhu Hai. Hello. Hello. <laughs> it is fabulous to have you here. These have always been kind of just, I get the most interesting and fun people I know into Aww. the studio. Just oh, This has really been an excuse for me to just talk to friends, which is nice because it proves I've got some. So... Uh, <laughs> I'm flattered to be counted among them. You are, and highly so. I, 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 just, I think I've described the last couple as like Patricia and Amelia Roper and stuff like that as being among the, my, my favourite people, and you absolutely qualify as one Oh, jeez, thanks. So there you go. Thwarning aside, let's talk about you, not just how great I think oh. you are. Let's give context to uh, our, I say readership then, our, our listeners. Sure. You graduated from VCA around, I know, all the way back, right, um, uh, 2000. The- 2001? Yeah, Paleolithic period, 2002. Um, Yeah, 2002, right, okay. Uh, And so in that year, that was Lindy's era. So you guys were learning impulse and Mm -hmm. blueprinting. Dropping in, in. the the process. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Which there is, I've talked in the past on this thing uh, about um, like traditions of performance in Mm. Australia and how we say that we don't have any, but there are Mm. kind of these little underground tributaries of of tradition I think so and that impulse stuff is part of that because it comes from sort of the 70s the sort of looking at that like Tanya Gerstle and people look at and in the 80s and so on and then there's still people using it now yeah yeah I I believe so I mean I'm certainly I I draw on it as part of my theatre making process as part of my filmmaking process in fact it was a really particular time, I think, that mm. that training period. Mm. You know, I, I think a lot of people can sort of say that about their institutions, but it felt like there was – it was the end of an era, like those few years were the end of an era, and it, we I feel very, very privileged to have trained um, under Lindy but also with, you know, Draff and yeah. Lisa Shelton. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, all of the teachers who were there at the time, you know, Richard Murphy was there as well and he was teaching the directors and mm-hmm. the animateurs. Mm-hmm. And I think that there was a, a particular philosophical approach yep. that really formed a, a bedrock of understanding of practice then. And, look, it is true that you're going to have a thatch of graduating years and not all of them are going to go on to continue to practice. Mm, yeah. But you'd hope that there's a couple of graduates who actually take the uh, the ideological, philosophical approaches that you've instilled in them artistically into the world and yeah, continue yeah. the work in some capacity. And I am sort of consider it to be like a genetic thing in a way. Like it's a, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like there's there's a germ of what it was that we built into our DNA while mm-hmm. we were there and we take that out and we sort of... You know, we mate with other people and yeah, we yeah, dial it, yeah, but yeah. you know that. Which is how traditions evolve and live, right? Yeah. Like that's how they kind of grow and respond to the now, which is I think one of the interesting things about that kind of experience of that, even when you're sort of on the outside of it, like I was, the that kind of close-knit experience of drama school mm. and learning a way of thinking about being in the world. Absolutely. Which I mean, like some of the people I've interviewed for my PhD who went to VCA or yeah. went to NIDA and, and then – made stuff in their 20s and don't make anything now. Like mm. these guys who were making it in the 80s, et cetera. Yeah. Even them, they approach their kind of general day-to-day life with that sort of mindset, which is a really interesting kind of, I want to say performative, but it's not really that. It's more kind of... That's, it is philosophical, I think. It's, an it's definitely philosophical. Well, it's kind of mindfulness yeah. about... Yeah. I mean, I was actually thinking on the way here, I was remembering something that Lindy always used to say to us. She had this lecture that she would deliver sort of infrequently, but to to whatever kind of guest group that she was lecturing to called The Wind on the Wire. And, you know, a, a key thesis 
in it was as an artist, you have to work out how to live in the world but not be of the world. Yes, 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 I've heard that, yes. And I think that it's harder and harder. It's increasingly difficult for us and I think it's increasingly critical for artists to be able to find that really, really particular, walk that really, really fine line Mm. of being responsive to the world but not necessarily being overcome by it. Mm. Fuck, you know. Well, it's it's a whirlpool (laughs) then. I mean, like it's always been one but Jesus, does it feel like... There are sharks in those waters right oh, now, right? Man, like it's, it's really hard. Yeah, yeah. And how you engage with that without being pulled under those uh-huh. kind of waters, mm-hmm. if you want to engage with it at all, kind of emotively at all, mm. I don't know how you can do it. Like, well, this is why, I mean, you know, as we were walking to the studio, we were talking about practice. I was talking to yeah. you about practice and I was, I was saying that in response to external fraughtness, which all of this is a part of, you know, the 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 – daily imperatives of the world, the commercial imperatives of the world in response to that, because it is mounting and I feel like the pressure is building up in the in the chamber, in the artist's chamber, mm. I think you have to have some form of practice, mm. um, be that, you know, sort of a more formal you know, Tai Chi meditation, yep. yoga practice, yep. or whether it's, you know, meditation through writing or through walking or talking. You know, I, I think that these sorts of mindful engagements are really, really necessary in order to stay able to deal with the work, in order to be able to mediate the Mm. work through the body. Mm -hmm. So I was going to do a kind of, well, no, I always say I'm going to do a kind of historical retrospective and we go, okay, from there you did this kind of work and then we did into that, et cetera. But I'm going to leap right into contemporary practice because uh, unlike everybody else, I texted Ming last night to say, well, well, let's talk about these things and what are you interested in at the moment? And two of the artists you texted me about, I, of course, had never heard of and so did a quick amount of research on Wikipedia um, (laughs) to be at least vaguely conversant. And it strikes me, the thing that leapt out at me after reading about these, I'm going to leave you to tell us about them. You will have at least seen one of their films, which is more than me. Uh, But one of the things that leapt out at me about both of their work was a sense of stillness. Mm. A sense of like the documentary kind of photos Mm. and the long kind of uh, scenes where nothing much happens, etc. Creating kind of filmic places for stillness and a Mm. reflection, I suppose, and all that other stuff. And the way that can be used as a storytelling motif as well was really interesting because, of course, one of them was... Chris Marker? Chris Marker. I was really interested to read that the La Giette that he did was one of the inspirations for 12 Monkeys. Yeah. And as soon as I'm reading the description, I'm like, this is so like 12 Monkeys. I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah, because of course. So tell us about those guys, and I'm really mm. interested in that notion of, do you, is that like, do you, that's mm. what I feel like is a connection for that and the kind of work mm. I know you make. Mm. Talk mm. to me about that stuff. Yes, I think it's true that one of the things that I hanker after at the moment is more stillness. Mm. And... And it's it's sort of about the audience, the spectator, being able to feel into the poetic space of the work. And what I really mean by that is I feel like at the moment so much work that's being made, and I, I'm talking about, you know, across mediums, but also across platforms in terms of the way we deliver this and we receive this, this information, this artwork, um, is hyper entertaining Mm -hmm. and uh, it's it's a barrage of information and it's about constant stimulation and you know I'm not immune to that at all I've been watching um, 
I've been really sort of obsessed with this show on Netflix called Patriot Act by Hassan Minhaj, which he describes as if Michael Bay did a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I enjoy that as much as the next person, but I'm also very aware of the fact that we need, you know, that is the YouTube world and yeah. we need an antidote to that. Uh, we desperately, I believe, crave an antidote to that. There's something about the still, the meditative and the, the breath-filled and the hand-hewn that we, we absolutely fucking need to return to. I, I, so I sent you these, these when you sent me that text message saying, who are you interested in at the moment? I'm like, oh, fuck, well, I'm interested in a lot. I don't know. Yeah. But, <laughs> it's an unfair question. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I do keep coming back to these artists like Chris Marker and Angela Shanelak, um, who Chris Marker is, is quite well-known and La Jete is, you know, widely regarded as one of the most iconic art house experimental films, even though I don't regard it as being particularly experimental because it, uh, for anybody out there who doesn't know it, it's uh, like a novella length film. So it's 20 minutes in length and it's told ostensibly speaking through still images mm-hmm. with a voiceover. And there's one moving image in there, which is quite, it's quite spectacular to have a single moving image in the middle of still images. And it's a speculative fiction. It's an Armageddon story, basically. Uh, well, it is the story from 12 Monkeys. He goes back in yes. time. He even dies in the, spoilers, he even dies in the um, airport. Yes, it is 12 yeah, But the thing about it is that it is still, and it is quite silent as well and in that, many respects. the kind of circularity of it too has its stillness as well, because even though there's movement through the narrative and movement through the story, etc., it doesn't go anywhere. Well, it's a mandala. Of course it is. Paul Schrader wrote a book in his 20s <laughs> called... Uh, transcendental style in film. And he was talking to the work of Dreyer and Ozu and Bresson. And he's recently published an update to the book now in light of the fact that that text was used in a lot of cinema studies over the years and sort of a, a, a volume of study grew out of this notion of transcendental style, which effectively was him coining a term for slow cinema. This new edition, he wrote a, a wonderful thesis which forms a new introduction, which includes the work of so many other filmmakers but he also created this thing called the non-narrative map and in the the nucleus of the non-narrative map effectively there's um, slow cinema that gestures at at at, uh, sort of industry accepted narrative in the center and moving outward from there it gets more and more abstracted and so uh, about a third of the way out from the nucleus on the map is what's known as the Tarkovsky ring and within the Tarkovsky ring are works that could conceivably win at Cannes or (laughs) be selected in the you know in Sundance or be nominated for an Academy Award Award. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond the Tarkovsky ring, it becomes more quote unquote experimental. Mm-hmm. And there's one um, uh, endpoint uh, on this map. There's sort of like three nodal points that the, the work heads out towards. One endpoint is the art gallery, one endpoint is the surveillance camera, and the other endpoint is the mandala. Mm-hmm. And I find it really fascinating to consider. I mean, I, don't, I think that slow cinema is a bit of a flawed term, but I find it interesting to consider contemplative um, story-based practices and contemplative contemplative movement and temporal practices within the context of moving towards stillness and the notion of singular meditation. Well, I mean, that's brilliant right there, right? Like that's, that's I mean, aside from that being a funding application right there, um, yeah, you and you were saying you don't know a bunch of stuff. How are you finding that manifesting in your work at the moment? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's a challenge. 
I'm re- <laughs> okay. In a way that you can tell me about? I'm really, I'm sort of, a, uh, <laughs> for all my talk of stillness and contemplation, I'm very much at war with myself about the work at the moment. I think that's a perennial state, isn't it? I'm sort of focusing on four distinct works mm-hmm. and they really do cross mediums. So one of them is a collaboration with a playwright. Another is a collaboration with a playwright and a dramaturg. They both sit in two very distinct spaces. So one of them is an adaptation of a classical work. Mm-hmm. The other is really a, res- a response to um, contemporary legal structures and um, mystery tropes. Mm-hmm. And then I'm working on two other um, personal projects, which really explore the notion of um, self and what it is to be looked at and what it is to see. And that's in relation to objectification, but also in relationship to surveillance. And I'm really fascinated by the way in which objectification, the beauty industry and sexualization of women Mm -hmm. and um, the objectification of, you know, exotification of people of colour and the commercialization of that sits in relationship to public surveillance and opting in to be surveilled digitally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, these are, these are not calm subject matters. These are not subject matters that give me any peace whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And so I, and I'm sort of compelled to explore them. So I'm very much grappling with how I can engage with a slow, explorative, experimental practice while exploring those particular ideas and whether that's um, whether the two are fundamentally opposed or mm. whether there is actually something sort of deeply poetic that I can – and I, my instinct is that it has to move away from the rational. I have to not rationally analyse those things, but I have to sort of feel into the space mm. of them really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, it strikes me that things like surveillance and, I mean, the gaze itself are – can be still experiences as well, particularly surveillance. I think of the surveillance camera, right, and long, long, long periods of staring at nothing. Yeah. And the kind of unchangeability of the way the gaze works as well, particularly in context of, like, um, sexualization and photography, of course. I mean, that traps the moment in now in in a frozen kind of stillness. This has been a theme in your work for a long time, I think, because I can see elements of that in Attract Repel. Mm. I can see elements of that in Why. Mm. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Particularly the being looked at and what it does to... Okay, so uh, people may remember uh, Attract Repel, I would think, because that was a fairly... Uh, well received and got. Did your tour? I recall it. No, get, no, it was a. Re- it was like, I feel like it was like a seven night season. No, sure. I remember yeah. it being this really big kind of everybody. Maybe it was just me because I thought it was amazing. But uh, everyone could be was about. talking about it. It was yeah, certainly. Yeah. It was a bit of a thing. Okay, good. I'm glad it was. No, it was. was not se- it was definitely a thing. <laughs> um, the, I wish I could expre- explain the expression that just crossed her face. Um, the, okay, but so before we get to that, let's talk about why, because why uh, was earlier on? Tell it me. was my first piece ever. Really? No, you've made work at school, surely. Oh, yeah, but, you know. Yeah, okay. It was, you know. It was first thing out in the world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was part of Next Wave, It yes? was, yeah. Tell me about it. Mm. 
Um, she goes, I don't remember. It was no, a long I do. Time ago. I actually have a really strong memory of making it. Yeah. I was really obsessed with Yoko Ono. Yeah. Um, and I was obsessed with Yoko. For this very reason, I was I was really interested in a woman who was Asian um, and was very public and who was also an extraordinary artist. And, uh, you know, aside from all of that, uh, you know, her being an extraordinary artist, I was fascinated by her work. Mm. She's a fluxus artist. Mm. Her work is very minimal. It was very provocative. Um uh, and it was provocative in its minimalism, in mm. its in its poetry. So she very um, famously has this published this book called Grapefruit, which is a book of instruction poems. Mm. Um, and uh, that you know, I actually can't quote any directly, but they're things like um, I'm going to really misquote this, but it's like cut a hole in the sky. The sky the sky should be pure blue. Mm. Um, and you know, painting for the wind, which is like find a canvas and hold it in the wind. It's just like mm-hmm. really remarkable things that make you go, that, that are sort of like you go, oh, is that a Zen koan? Oh, no, I'm just really exotifying that. that yeah. And yeah. so that, you know, you, you have to be really reflexive about your response to her work as well in terms of being Western, coming from a Western perspective. But there, there's that whole other element of her being John Lennon's wife, which is, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> which was so very whatever as well. Like, I mean, it's uh, – I also have something of a thing for, for Yoko's work, particularly with Fluxus because, yeah. oh, I love Fluxus. Um, but, uh, I mean, it's very me, right? Like right. It, make things and they're kind of jokes but they're yeah. kind of weird. Yeah. Um, but, but they're also points of meditation, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. totally, right? And um, Well, that's the whole point. Use the joke to interrupt the flow of mm-hmm. the world and mm-hmm. you, that's where you can find your moment of stillness in that moment. That's the whole point of comedy. So I have Sarah Greentree to thank for um, – being able to make the show. She was, she really, I just want to like shout out to Sarah. Sure. Because she really championed me at that time. It was, it was, it was kind of incredible. She really very much pushed for me to, um, to make work and to make that work. Uh, and um, I, I think I, I'm really saying that because um, we really need champions yeah. in this world and we really need people to um help carve out little pathways. Um, I absolutely wouldn't be here um, today if it weren't for her. So right. that's – yay, Sarah. Mm. Um, uh, I made that work really in response to the fact that I felt that there wasn't um, – there wasn't <laughs> – I made it because I wanted to see stillness on stage. Mm. Um, and her work spoke to me as an artist – uh, in a way that so much other theatre work was not speaking to me. And yeah. I thought, well, how can I find a way of putting that in the space? I know I'll just take her story and I'll yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll create metaphors from that. Um, and so everything that I created for why was responsive to her practice. None of it was quoting her work. There was nothing that I used on stage that was actually her work. Yeah, I just yeah. uh, riffed on it. Um, uh, and, you know, it was, it was really interesting for me to um, – Weave. Uh, I'm really. I'm. I'm working with the text of the Odyssey at the moment, so I'm like kind of interested uh-huh. in tapestry. But um, uh, to to weave the concept of being um, uh, an Asian woman in a white world, practicing in a way with ideas and forms that other people aren't practicing. Um, being uh, loathed for a particular, yeah. you know, being an outsider for a particular reason, um, but also carrying an enormous amount of grief and yet being able to translate that into a form of optimism and um, 
and a response to critics, like a, a response to critics that is in some way transformational mm, as well. Mm. It wasn't just that she was saying, fuck you to people. She was saying, no, you must love. Mm, like, mm. whoa, that's pretty revolutionary. Mm, um, mm. You know, as, as unchipper as I am as a human being, I, I have a lot of respect for that. Oh, totally. I think there's a there's something to seeing the the value and, and importance of that that notion, but also not seeing it reflected in the world around us, which makes us perhaps not so chipper as it, it like if everything was that, maybe yeah. we wouldn't be so crotchety as we are. <laughs> um, that puts a lot of blame on the world, I have to say. Uh, I mean, there have obviously been a range of works in between then, and yeah. you're you've been a professional actor. Uh, I think almost as soon as you graduated. Yeah. Yeah, you went to not just um, film and telly, but you did a lot of kind of stage work, yeah. your sort of MTCs and Playbox, as it was yeah. at the time. So with all of that stuff in there, ma- yeah. m- managing a kind of professional career, there was, uh, I think, a big chunk of that plus uh, your engagement with the community online because you were yeah. one of the early bloggers as well. Yeah. With Mink Tales. Yeah. Um, which you kicked up a stink with a couple of times. Oh, did I? I did too. Absolutely, yeah. you did. Yeah, um, I was so young. We all were. We all shout. Were our generation shouted about things when we were young? Kids don't seem to be shouting as much as as we were. Oh, they're crying though. Yeah. Well, I mean, the world's dying around them, I guess. So you know, what can you do? Bleak moment. I don't want to go too much into the 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 blog thing, but it was a it was a kind of crucial moment, I think, for the independent theatre community at that time it when was. all those kind of blogs, Alison's yours, yeah. uh, Yana, Yana ben, ben Ellis. Ben Ellis ran a blog? Yes. He did too. He did too, yes. Daniel Schlusser. Schlusser had a blog? Yeah. Yes, he did. God, I can forget all of these ones. Richard. Richard. Uh, what? Oh, yeah, Man About Town still yeah. has that. Does he still run that? No, he maybe not. No, maybe. Basically, a handful of people got their hands on the notion of blogs as a way to talk about theatre, and then everybody started arguing on the blogs and then starting their own blogs. It was really dynamic, actually. It was. Well, it's the way those kind of new sort of forms of being able to talk about a thing happen, right? There's this sudden burst of um, everybody wants on. But before it went to that kind of horrible sort of, social place it was being used to do really interesting thing interesting things and one of those was yours because you were one of the first people to call out the kind of whiteness of the Mm. um melbourne stage i don't know if it was an australian stage it was a a, well you know i was really only in melbourne so yeah yeah. but certainly you can say that um the part represented the whole and still to an extent does 15 or so years between then and now at least 10. Yeah, right? Like it creeps up on you. Um, there has been a hell of a lot of shift and change and all at the same time there has been a hell of a lot of resistance to that change. Mm. What does the author of MGTOWs think of that 10 years on? Well, for starters, I have to say that that was really in response to Lee Lewis's paper, Cross-Racial Casting, yes. Changing the Face of Australian Theatre. And at the time I was in, you know, quite robust discussions with Melanie Betty about it as well and she was really wanting to make a lot of change. She mentioned you actually when I had her on the podcast we were talking about the Women's Directors Alliance. Yeah. Oh, yep. Uh, You know, I think there was a lot of – the discussion was happening around the edges of Mm. the main stage and, uh, you know, I do remember going into a a reading at um, uh, a main stage company and – there was a, a it was a room full of people actors of color and uh, there was one actor of color who was um, playing another race another race who was just so completely divorced mm. from the ethnicity that this actor was because they couldn't find somebody of that right and it was just it, it to me it was just such an indictment on on mm. on our industry mm. um, and how we are not doing 
well enough, we're not doing good enough. Um, and at the same time, um, my husband, who is a white man, um, was asked to come into a main stage company just for a reading, just for a script development, but read the role, um, that, or read a role that was written for a brown actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and he told me about it and I said, well, you can't fucking go in. You can't do that. You can't, I mean, I don't care that we need the money. You can't go in because that effectively robs, um, the room of, of that voice. Yeah. Uh, and there's. And those people of that work. Right. Like really. I, yes, we've absolutely changed and we've absolutely made some shifts and, and I think we've changed in some good ways in many, many ways, but I think it's still a battle. And yeah. I think the reason it's still a battle is because um, our power structures are still very, very much dominated by white white voices and white bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's not going to change until it changes. That's really the long and the short of it. It's not going to change until it changes. Mm-hmm. And I, we're still having difficult conversations around this and we shouldn't need to be but also I think one of the things that's happening is that because of the ways in which um, so many structures have been defunded Mm. recently I mean the the bodies that fund structures have been defunded and we've got a conservative government and we've just got a conservative society which is very very much driven by the dollar I mean in a way if you look at the way in which the cultural landscape has shifted in just taking Melbourne as an example the way in which the arts are discussed and the way in which the arts are marketed and sold um, is so much more about uh, being a Netflix substitute mm-hmm. um, than actually, mm, yeah. you know what I mean? Like actually having... Go a Netflix, go out and see some theatres. Right. Some, yeah, in, yeah, in, yeah, actually God, yeah. having inherent cultural value in and of itself as an ordinary punter I'm not going to go to the theatre because I feel fucking driven to go and have this deep visceral experience I'm going because someone said it might be a bit entertaining yeah, yeah. and that's a problem that's a really yeah. really massive problem I'm coming back to the point in a second I'm no no that's winding fine. my <laughs> way back I think what happens when a culture becomes driven almost exclusively by sales, by the dollar and by the way in which something is positioned within a marketplace that has to compete with a mainstream standard and that mainstream standard is hyper-commercialised and ultimately very, very strongly influenced by interest groups that are conservative, is that you, you can't take risks (laughs) risks <laughs> and I use the, the word risk very lightly because we all know that when we divi- diversify things we actually have extraordinary amounts of, of um, economic boon um, but y- y- there there is a sense of um, not being able to stray into territories that might um, you know not not necessarily pay off that that, mm-hmm. that aren't necessarily mm-hmm. tested um, and I I I, I fear I fear for the future of all our art forms, to be honest, mm. not just in Australia, but internationally. I see this happening in um, Hollywood, but I also see this happening in international film festivals. I see this, I'm going to make up words now, mm. creeping genericism, you know, and there are some outliers, absolutely. And, you know, you hope and you pray for those outliers. But also who gets to come to the table as an outlier too, mm is often dictated by, you know, pre-existing structures. Mm. Um, does that does that speak to the question? I, don't I know. think it does because my thought to that is 
uh, there are two things that, I, as always, there are two things that I can say about that. One of those is the normalizing thing is to say, um, but we've been through periods of this sort of uh, clamping down sure. before. Culture is a a conversation. It yeah. swings back and forward yeah. and we're just in a period of hardening and it will swing away, etc. It's the kind of normalizing way sure. of saying that even though each time the swing gets further one direction than the other, it's still, we've done this before, we've done this before. So there's that. But the other thing I was going to say was that that um, I, I've been watching this stuff for a while. Like mm. I've been standing outside uh, uh, these kind of arguments. I mean, it's very difficult for uh, me as a kind of mostly straight white guy to come into these conversations and do anything other than, well, as a straight white guy, this is what I think and I represent the middle and I represent the no- normality. And so that's what, it's very hard, even if I don't think that, not to represent that. So I've sort of stayed out to go, well, actually maybe it's more interesting to and useful to let other people talk, listen, and learn. And so one of the things I'm watching is that there is a replication of structure. Mm. Um, and it's not about necessarily – it's not necessarily about individuals. It's not necessarily about particular cultural clashes or anything. It's about the fact that there has been a particular – hierarchical approach to how power is distributed, Mm. which privileges whoever set it up first. And Mm -hmm. that was the white people who came here and set that stuff up Mm -hmm. first. And it's, it worked, that system actively works to exclude anything that is different, Mm -hmm. any kind of difference, Mm -hmm. which is kind of how systems operate. Sure. Right. Like they, they, they operate to perpetuate themselves and change is, a costly process in energy. It's much easier energy-wise to simply fritter that energy away and let the system die and then be replaced with a new one. Neither of those are great outcomes for where we are. No. I have nothing else to say about that. I mean, you know what I I think is that we all have to be fiercely independent. And I don't know what the economics of this are. My response and my answer to that is to is is fierce independence, mm. is understanding what's going on and really looking at everything from quite a broad perspective and not being naive about it, but understanding what it is you need to say and how you need to say it and then just going and doing it. And I, I you know, the problem with that, of course, is that there is an inherent privilege uh-huh. that well, is required in order to be able yeah. to do that. It's a lot easier for me to be anarchic than it is for you maybe. So I come in with my own kind of like, oh, yeah, no, I got mental illness and I got all these kind of other things that are qualifiers for the fact that, look, really, I'm actually a kind of nice guy. Um, But but all of that sort of stuff as a straight white male, if I decided to um, be, I'm just going to be an asshole about the way I want things and I'm going to be rude to you about whatever because I know blah, 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 blah. I can get away with that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, I definitely can't. You know, and and I'm painfully aware of the fact that I, um, I've, i you know, on a sort of very personal level, professionally, I feel like I've put myself through a lot of suffering. I've suffered enormously because of the fact that I have a tendency to um, nod and say yes and um, pretend I agree with people when I don't or um, agree to do things that I have absolutely no artistic or professional interest in doing because I feel obliged to so that people won't hate me and think I'm some sort of evil witch. Um you know, and, you know, I'm sort of reaching the point where I'm like, fuck, I'm 37 years old. It's just time to be an evil witch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what gives you hope at the moment? Uh, <laughs> Let's claw that back. Here's my mime skills. This is me casting a line. There's a, a an artist. Oh, for Eliasson. He's a, a Berlin-based artist. Uh, he's a, like... 
international art megastar. <laughs> uh, very famously, Studio Oliver Eliasson is this incredible, massive building, but also institution and concept that f- has its physical home in Berlin. Um, and it's filled with hundreds of, of artists and technicians and producers. You know, they, they create Oliver Eliasson's works. Um, mm. and, and, you know, I, I believe that they're the brains of the work as well. And he has this, um, he, has, he has a kitchen. Uh, where they cook mostly vegetarian, very um, ecologically sustainable food that's um, very much aligned with the the principles of permaculture and um, and and different traditional eating um, philosophies. And you know, Alice Waters has come in and been. You know, he has lots of amazing guest chefs from around the world that come in and, and cook sustainably for the family of artists. Um, but his work is is inherently um, driven nowadays very much by questions around ecology and I found out about, about Vananda Shiva through him who's an eco-feminist and, and sort of discussions around um, uh, how we can engage in a, sort of a radical ecology in order to be able to heal um, the, the, the way in which we fucked the world and the way in which governments are continuing to fuck the world. The notion of radical ecology and permaculture and, um, and, uh, and ethical eating, uh, you know, and, you know, and again, it's coming back to the hand hewn is um, really exciting to me. And I think the fact that Oliver Elias and, and his studio really seamlessly integrate that into their artistic practice is really exciting. And if you look at any of his works, um, like you'll see exactly what I mean. They're very, there's very much the mandala, but they're, mm. you know, they are sculptural and they're, they're light based. And I believe some are sonic and some are photographic, but they're always in response to either the notion of the landscape within or the landscape. The, the landscape without all the sort of coalescence of the two. Um, and he does a lot of magnificent collaborations as well, but they're so supremely um, spiritual. They're mm. sublime, um, sacred art, very much that sits in a secular world, mm. which is deeply compelling to me. And and I think that the practice of, e- of, of, of growing, of farming, of cooking, of eating, of of sharing, of feeding, of breaking bread is inherent to the way in which we need to re-engage with practice. And that, I think, is what's going to break down those power structures. And I know that sounds idealistic and that sounds like I'm about to go and fucking move to a hippie commune. But I actually almost think, I mean, maybe this comes back to the year of that training that I did out of VCA. Yeah, that, that, that there is a sense of responsibility. There is a, a sense of responsibility to your community but to the broader world that your practice holds and knowing that your work has an incredibly potent knock-on effect. And one of the things I think that's really exciting about Eliasson is that he's become popular and he's radical. Uh, yeah, that's uh, – I, 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 I would agree with that. The only thing I – the only thing I would add to that is I think that's coming. I think that's next. Do you? I think the collapse has to happen first because I think that's what we I think that's what we desperately need. That notion of uh, performance and practice and life as all the same thing, as making food for each other, as talking to each other, as standing up in front of a group of our peers and saying a thing. All of those things are how we constitute culture mm. and. Um, we do that on a smaller scale individually much better than we do it on a massive kind of commercial scale because mm. it can't be done on a commercial scale. Mm. It has to be um, commodified and it becomes a money-making tool mm. and so it loses that kind of uh, one-to-one connection where 
like playing a game, performance and life is play between the two of us. Mm-hmm. We negotiate how we are together with each other. Mm. We do that through performance. We used to do that through performance. Um, and it's only been in the last uh, 2,000 years that we've shifted away for only in the last 2,000 years, but we've shifted into gradually that kind of broadcast model where one person gets to share how they feel with millions and not vice versa. And so I feel like that's what's missing. That's why people don't have that driving need like we were talking about earlier, that I have to go out and go to the theatre or I could just stay here and watch Netflix because mm. they're the same fucking thing. Mm. Where they're not, and I've said for all my life, I used to get told even in the 90s, right, when we were starting out, mm. that, uh, oh, well, theatre's been killed off by cinema and TV. TV can do what... No, it can't. It can't mm. at all do what theatre does and theatre can't do what TV does. No. They're very, very different things and currently we, we use theatre like it's live cinema. Okay. This other thing that I think is very important is... Uh, who's going to the theatre, who's going to what theatre, mm-hmm. why, mm-hmm. and is that enough? Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't think it's enough. I, I can, I'm working I can give you the numbers to say I can think right. it's not enough. I'm not seeing a truly diverse audience in theatres yet. Um, and I'm also seeing that audience is fairly fragmented between different types of theatres yeah. too, which is understandable that is what happens when you have art as a commodity too. Yeah. You know, you um, you go, this is uh, this has got um, a USP that sells to this particular market segment um, and so therefore you know you're making work for this particular market segment and that particular market segment and you've got the numbers to be able to back that up and that translates to ticket sales, which is absolutely what you need when you have to deal with the economics of venue hire and paying mm-hmm. artists and blah, 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 because this is an industry after all. This, this problem of the majority of people not feeling compelled to go, mm. to run mm-hmm. to the theatre, mm-hmm. that is the core issue. Mm-hmm. I think that is the core issue because theatre is not doing what it's supposed to do. Theatre is not doing what it needs to do. And I don't and know. And not, not just MTC, no, not no, just no, the no, majors no, no, or anything. No, 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 no. Theatre. Theatre in yeah, general. Yeah. And I don't know why. I can't tell you exactly why. And I don't want to point fingers. I don't think that's useful. But I, ju- I think as a phenomenon at the moment in here, here at the very least, in Australia at the very least, and I can't talk to other countries. Yeah. Um, at the moment because it may be exactly the same everywhere. We may have reached this point with our art making where we've kind of all just fallen asleep a little bit. Mm. Um, I I think we've kind of lost, you know, um, a muscular connection to it in Mm. some way. And, and I kind of go, well, you know, it's, it's very, very possible. It's eminently possible that the next few things I make will be utterly the same. It's that, you know, it's, Mm. I'm not, I don't in any way excuse myself from this. I wonder whether we've actually lost connection to the fucking why the, you know, Mm. that the, the deep visceral, um, poetic why. And I think Maybe this is why I'm obsessed with silence at the moment is because I almost feel like we have to strip everything away and find out what it is that's at the heart of us again. And that's just basically, I mean, you can do that from from project to project. So it's a matter of being clear about what it is you're making with the work right, and what what the value of the work is, which is an an acknowledgement that there are other outcomes for work than simply, Mm. quote, unquote, success, right? And again, I feel like our industry tells us that this one story over and over mm. so that it 
it tortures and kind of uh, uh, deforms the work itself. It stops. You make the work, even though you think you're making it because you're making the work, for goals that are fundamentally either economic or social. Yeah, and I think that's where the, or, the work dies. I mean, to, yeah. in a in a in a, um, a, a Brooke-esque way, that's where you get dead theatre or dead Deadly film, theater, you know, yeah. dead cinema. Or that that's actually what happens is that the work dies between the effort to do one thing, but the actual reality of doing the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's you know that's that's. That's the graveyard of, of artwork, to be honest. And a filled graveyard it is. It is indeed. Oh, no, we went bleak again. <laughs> we did. But we've now we've been talking for like 40 or 50 minutes, so I'm going to leave it there. That is, oh, I, think, okay. I think generally that was pretty, uh, pretty not, not too terrible uh, uh, and dark an ending for, uh, for us. I think we, um, we, 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 we salvaged something there. So I'm going to say thank you very much for joining us, Ming Zhu Hai. Thanks, you have been listening to The Witness Podcast with Mingju Hai, sound by Ben Keen. I'm Robert Reed. Remember to go to The Witness website and subscribe if you don't already, but of course you do because you don't get these podcasts unless you subscribe. So remember to tell people, even though we got Creative Arts Victoria funding, which we did, and that's terrific, it's not enough to keep us going for the whole year yet. So remember, we need people to subscribe.